Hello, everyone, and welcome to First Film, the podcast where we discuss famous directors and their feature-length directorial debuts. My name is Baden. And I'm Kyle. And today we're going to be talking about the legend himself, Bong Joon-ho. The parasite, some would say. The winner of both Best Director, I think, Best Picture, and Best International Film? For Okja. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, his best film by far. But if you're interested in learning how Bong Joon-ho himself got arrested, stick oh. around to find out. And as always, make sure to leave a like and subscribe to our TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube pages at First Film Potty, P O D D Y. And also make sure to uh, email us any suggestions, thoughts, or general discussion to First Film Potty, again, P O D D Y, at gmail.com. And follow us on everything on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, so you never miss an episode of the podcast. That's right. And tell your friends! Yeah, here's your challenge find someone, anyone, <laughs> a stranger, a friend. And a lover. Oh. And get them to listen to this. Well, speaking of lovers, why don't we go back in time to Bong Joon-ho's <laughs> life? <laughs> Here we go. So born in South Korea, his father, named Bong Sang-gyung, he was a graphic designer, professor of art, and interestingly enough, he was actually the head of the art department at the National Film Institute. So his father was married to a woman named Park So-young, and Park's father was an esteemed author, he did a lot of writing, and he was working in Korea when it was still part of the Japanese Empire. Oh my god. But it gets even crazier, because this man defected North Korea in 1950. What? Yeah. At this time, people were banned from borrowing his book from libraries. And when parts of his works were cited in like journals and like newspaper articles, his name would be redacted. Scrubbed out. Oh my yeah. God. So you can already see these political and art connections in his family from his father and his grandfather. So back to Bong Joon-ho, he mm-hmm. was the youngest of four children. And South Korea was in a very rough spot during this period as it was being ran by a military dictatorship. So when he was in university, he majored in sociology. But interestingly enough, he took part in a number of student-led protests. Oh, an activist. And these weren't just like picket sign protests. Right, right. He recalled getting frequently subjected to tear gas. (laughs) Holy shit. So much so, and this is from a recent interview, I think from four years ago, that he recalls smelling tear gas still to this day in his dreams. That's fucked up. Can you imagine? That's like a nightmare. Yeah, that was a long time ago. God, they were tear gassing like students and stuff. So I want to give a bit of background on, on these hell. student protests. Yeah, yeah, let's hear them. So these are part of the South Korean democracy movement after the Gwangju massacre. I won't get into the specifics, but it's very brutal, very an unfortunate time in history. Was the massacre like by the government? Yeah. Okay, okay. Bong says this about his time. Every day was the same. Protest during the day, drink at night. Except for a few people, <laughs> we didn't have much faith in the professors at the time. <laughs> so he was just like protesting during the day and just fucking hammering ones back at night. Was he even doing school at this point? Like it's not, it sounds like he was just kind of... I mean he was a sociology major so who knows? Uh, this, this was his homework actually. And it gets crazier. So the university he went to was called Youngsai University and fun easter egg is the school which one of the characters in Parasite pretends to go to. Oh is it the one where they forge the letter? Yeah. Oh snap little easter egg. But he actually had to leave Youngsai University as I mentioned because he gotten himself 
himself arrested for joining a union demonstration and served his mandatory two-year military term as that was his condition for a suspended sentence before going back to university. He was like Elvis Presley style, forced into the military. Yeah. So the reason I'm saying all of this is you can see how deep-rooted he is in the issues of Korea mm-hmm. with his grandfather's connections and his direct involvement in protests as, let's face it, Korean politics, heavy topic in his films. Yeah. Just you talking about that, it makes so much sense in everything we've seen him do. Oh, yeah. So to jump to the filmmaking side, Bong discovered his love for filmmaking when he was young watching movies on TV. Here's a quote from him on that. My mother was a little bit of a compulsive germaphobe. <laughs> and because in the movie theater you don't have a lot of sunlight, she insisted that it was filled with lots of germs. Very scientific. My channel choice was the American Armed Forces Network, which would broadcast Western films in censored form, leaving me to imagine what had been edited out. So despite enrolling in sociology, he wanted to pursue film and saved up his first camera by selling donuts in a school cafeteria for six months. Oh, I see. He pulled a little school, like, buy them in bulk on the cheap and then sell them up price at the school cafeteria. That's right. That's nice. right. A, a businessman. I like him. And so his first camera was a Hitachi camera, and he loved it so much that he says he still remembers sleeping at night hugging the camera <laughs> in his bed. Oh my god. Like in Parasite, the guy sleeps hugging like the stone, I'm pretty sure. Oh my god, you're right. I mean, it's not exactly the same, but he, you know, he pulls a lot from real life, so. I actually have a lot to talk about that based on Parasite, but we'll get to that a little bit later. Yeah. So, Bong would make a film club in his school entitled Yellow Door, as the film room in his university had, well... A purple door. Exactly, (laughs) yeah. Uh, And he made a few short films here, a stop-motion piece called Looking for Paradise. Oh, did you manage to find that? Couldn't find it anywhere. Yeah. A lot of directors put their, like, early stuff on Blu-ray releases. Yeah. Of their, like, high-grossing films. put it as like an extra? I think he actually did that with his next one. It was called Baksakin. And this was about a man's unusual reaction to finding a severed index finger on his way to work. You know, we'll, we'll probably talk about that because there's a lot of like stumbling upon weird things. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, so after he graduated and made two graduation films being incoherence about three seemingly unrelated men committing petty crimes on an even of important televised discourse on a social disorder in Korea. But interestingly enough, this starred Roha Kim, who was the shadow man in Barking Dogs Never Bite. Oh. And he's actually in Memories of a Murder as well. Yeah. Uh, so his other film was actually called Memories in My Frame. And he also would actually take on a few roles as a cinematographer working on a film called 2001 Imagine. You really, you had me there for the first couple of lines. <laughs> I was like, he fucking did what on what? He was one of the monkeys, yeah. Oh my god. He was the obelisk. For the next five years, he was basically trying his hardest to break into the industry, receiving partial screenplay credits on seven reasons why beer is better than a lover. I think I probably can work out what that one's about. (laughs) He assisted on Motel Cactus, but most notably, he was one of four writers in the film Phantom, The Submarine. What? (laughs) I don't know, I guess it's about a ghost submarine, who knows? He loves his ghosts. But this five years was very rough for him, and apparently he resorted to shooting wedding videos to make a living. Can you imagine if your wedding was shot by Bong? Junho. I know! Somewhere out there, there are wedding videos and photos taken by Bong Joon-ho. Like, that's 
incredible. So in the year 2000, when he was 31 years old, he would release Barking Dogs Never Bite with producer Chae Sung Jae, who comes up a little bit more. And he had worked with him in Motel Cactus and Phantom Submarine. So the film was shot in the same apartment complex where Bong lived after his marriage. I think he got a divorce. Oh, okay. And received little commercial interest, but sold 100,000 tickets for this film, which for your first feature length, pretty good. Pretty good. So with one film under his belt, he would go on to make his second movie, Memories of Murder, Mm -hmm. in 2003, based on a real-life serial killer who terrorized a rural town. The jump from Barking Dogs to Memories of Murder? Memories of Murder is an incredible film. If no one had told me, I would have thought it was the film he made just before Parasite. And interestingly enough, it was produced by the same man and sold over 5 million tickets, saving Cha Sung from bankruptcy. Wow. Okay, so that really paid off then. Yeah. So the film received very high critical reception and won lots of awards in film festivals and it actually gained him a Best Director Award and this is the start of him becoming a household name in Korea. Mm. So his next project is something that fascinates me and not a lot of people talk about this. So it's called Influenza and this was made in 2004 and it's a 30 minute short film that follows a desperate man turning to violent crime to survive. But the catch of this film is that it was filmed on real life CCTV cameras across Seoul. You don't think he was working through anything with that though, did you? <laughs> a struggling man turning to violence to survive. You don't think he maybe pulled that from his no, real life? No, no. Well, here's what I like to think about. Imagine you're some random security guard. It's like 3am and you see this guy commit some violent crime on a CCTV right, camera. yeah. And then they're like, oh, it's fine. Also, can we have the footage? Yeah. You know, the film was actually supposed to be two hours long, but they kept getting told they couldn't have the footage, so they had to make it 30 minutes. <laughs> so three years after Memories of Murder, in 2006, he would make a film called The Host. And this film was about a monster that wreaks havoc on the people of Korea and specifically one family. And this movie marked up not only a step for his career, but for the Korean filmmaking industry. There's this great scene where the monster's like rampaging, right? Mm -hmm. And this guy, he like grabs this little girl's hand. I think it's his daughter. And he's pulling her along and they fall and he drops her hand. And then he reaches over, he keeps running. And then as he's running, he looks back and it's like a different kid. Oh, whose hand is grabbed. But because of the framing, like we didn't see that at first and it pans over slowly. And in this just, in this short scene, masterful execution. He is fantastic at tricking you to believe something. Yeah. But before this film released, it actually garnered a lot of public view as there were many doubts on if a Korean production could create a believable digital monster. So Weta, they were contacted to do the CGI and obviously best known for Lord of the Rings, Mm -hmm. innovating so many technologies through that. Keeping New Zealand alive. But it actually would go to another company called The Orphanage, who are known for some Pirates of the Caribbean movies, but most famously, Iron Man's HUD display when he goes in his helmet. Pirates of the Caribbean, first of all, has like really good effects. Yeah. Really good effects. So I'm not too surprised there, but I, I had no idea they worked on the Iron Man stuff. But it broke Korean box office records sold 13 million tickets. Nice. And eventually Universal Studios bought the remake rights of the movie. Oh, but they haven't remade it. No. Okay, side note, you know what I think is kind of interesting? I don't know if this is coincidence or not, but when I was looking up a lot of his films, I was looking for a box office and stuff like that. I noticed that a lot of his films... Count them in tickets. Count them in tickets, not dollars. I think that's how the Korean productions do Right, they count it based on like seats filled, not necessarily like dollars. I kind of like that more. I do like it because you can see the jump, right? Right? He went from like 100,000 and Memories of Murder was 5 million or something. Yeah, yeah. So you can see the progression there. That, that's interesting. And like you can imagine like a 
person in a seat with the tickets, which I yeah. like. Yeah, that's a cool stat. I wish we did that more. I agree. So this was his major hit across overseas. Despite this, he made a few Korean productions before doing American co-productions. One of which was a French film called Tokyo, and the other was 2009's Mother. Uh, so this one is about a story of a mom, and she's trying to save her disabled son from a murder accusation. Although not as big as the host, the film had critical success locally and in foreign markets, and funnily enough, these Korean productions garnered controversy made it. Yeah, so he was quoted as highlighting government incompetence and spreading anti-American and left-wing messages, which is weird because it's a Korean government. Who cares if he's spreading anti-American messages? They've got to, like, get their fingers on everything, though. That is odd, though. And what I find interesting is that this critique is kind of what his grandfather got for writing his novels as well. Right, yeah, there's a bit of repetition there. And it's also just, like, you know you're in a wrong position when you're having to like ban work that is anti your government yeah. talking about the politics and stuff like exactly. once you reach that level you know like you've gone too far you've gone too far somewhere <laughs> i may have gone too far in a few places <laughs> george <laughs> lucas is, is watching the phantom Menace <laughs> in the theater and the reaction of the cti artist yeah. turning being like what, the, what fuck? the fuck so his next film was an american co-production based off of a french graphic novel called transpersonnaires ah i think i know where this is going entitled snow Piercer, Best movie of all time. Okay, let's not get ahead of ourselves here, all right? Uh, and this was a dystopian film set entirely on a train. Like the movie Speed, but with a train. <laughs> <laughs> so upon release, the film got lots of ticket sales, high praise, broke records. Being How many tickets, Kyle? Does it, why didn't it say how many tickets? Listen, It's because okay. it's an American movie, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is that, all right? <laughs> uh, and it's the 10th highest grossing domestic film in South Korea with 9 million admissions. So that actually did better than the host, kind of. Yeah. But I have a crazy story about the making of this film. Okay. So before the film released in 2012, so a year before it came out, a producing company would buy the distribution rights off of Korean producers who were set to distribute the film. Now, the production company, you may recognize the name, as it was released under the Weinstein Company. Oh, no. Harvey Weinstein himself had so many communications with Bong Joon-ho. They... They spoke. So Harvey was adamant about cutting 25 minutes from Bong's cut as he wanted, quote, more Chris Evans. Uh, all right. <laughs> and, and Bong said, I'm someone who until that point has only ever released the director's cut. Right. I've never done an edit. I didn't want to. Weinstein's nickname is Harvey Scissorhands, and he took such pride in his edit of the film. Oh, my God. And he remembered Weinstein telling him, wow, you are a genius. Let's cut the dialogue. He was hell-bent on cutting this one scene in particular which a train guard guts a fish. I think I do remember that. It's like to intimidate a group of rebels, Yeah, right? cracks open that fish like, <laughs> a, like a cold can of beer. And so this shot was one of Bong's like favorite shots in the entire film, and he refused to cut it. So this is a quote from Bong Joon-ho. Harvey hated it. Why fish? We need action. I had a headache in that moment. What do I do? So suddenly I said, Harvey, this shot means something to me. When Harvey asked what the shot meant, Bong replied, it's something personal. My father was a fisherman. I'm dedicating this shot to my father. Oh. <laughs> Weinstein told Bong that the family is the most important thing to him, which, oh my god, awful quote. <laughs> oh my fucking god. Um, and then continued letting Bong keep the fish gutting scene. And so Bong goes on to say, it was a fucking lie. Yeah. My father was not a fisherman. That's something out of a movie. Just an impossible lie gets told. And yeah. then like, you know, 
you know the person they're lying to like steps up really close to them and like leans in you're like oh my god he's gonna beat the shit out of them and then they're like hand on the hand shoulder, on the shoulder. <laughs> family is the most important thing to me so he actually took a bit of a break here i don't think he released his next film until 2017 which was okja a uh, film about a girl rescuing a genetically modified super pig i remember we were talking about that like when it was coming out like we discussed the trailer at the time oh yeah and actually upon appearing at Cannes, this sparked a lot of controversy not due to the film's topics of its environmental messages it's kind of like vegan attitudes because everyone thought okja was really ugly no but because it was being produced by netflix oh i didn't know that so much so that the netflix's logo appearing at a press screening caused the film to be met with mixed applause and boos I don't understand, though. Like, why Why were people so against that? Well, if you remember five years ago, there was a lot of stigma where Netflix and other streaming services were not really recognized as films to be submitted for... That's true. ...festivals and such. Right. And it's crazy now because I think everything that's come out has released on a streaming service. Yeah, it was a stupid standard. The Netflix logo was, like, on the side of the creature. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, before we get to his next film, I want to take you back in time to Bong's childhood. So when he was 20, not really a child. <laughs> <laughs> not quite. He landed a job as a tutor for some family's children, and the family lived in a mansion in one of the city's most exclusive districts. Kyle, 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 Kyle. I think you're getting confused. I think what you've actually found is the plot of Parasite. Oh, really, Vader? Yeah. Well, let me, let me just continue that. <laughs> Bong himself had grown in less lavish circumstances, and was the boy's math tutor. So he had been introduced to the family somewhat incognito by his now wife of 20 years, who was already tutoring the boy in English. He says, I was feeling out of my element and remember admiring walking around and looking at what the family had. God, it was a pre-LinkedIn world. You could just like, walk, you could just get a friend to recommend you and you get a job. Baden, you called it. Because that's the plot of 2019's Parasite, yeah. Yeah, it's a LinkedIn-based. Crazy that that was based on a real experience. Yeah. There's a lot of like, just his personal life spun into like a more dramatic version. Yeah. So if you haven't seen it. What are you doing? What are you doing here about to listen to us talk about barking dogs of by when you should be watching the movie Parasite. So, to give some more background, the film had a budget of 10 million USD, and it made back $260 million. Fucking hell. Like, that is an crazy good profit. Some people got very rich off of that Oh, film. yeah. And this film broke so many records, Baden. Let me, let me tell you about this. Won the Academy Award for Best Picture the first time a non-English language film did so, mm -hmm. and the first time Asian writers won Academy Awards for screenwriting. That's nuts. And not only that, he is part of a unique club of directors who have won Best Director, Best Screenplay, and Best Picture, which is shared by nine, but I think now ten with the Daniels. Yeah, that's good stuff. And most notably, this win is cited as a major step forward for popular appreciation of international film. No, for sure. Like, And, and without him, I don't think there would be the same recognition we're getting at the Oscars now for foreign language films. I agree. It also changed the critical landscape towards like more openness to this stuff. He, he really changed it. Uh, so interestingly enough, in 2020, it was announced a six-part HBO limited series would be based on the film. And it's supposedly around sequences happening in between the sequences of the film. And this is what strikes me as weird, because the film has an entirely Korean cast, but Tilda Swinton has been cast as the female lead. Yeah, I mean, I trust him, but it is weird. I wonder, right? Were these sections that he, like, took out? Or are these sections that he, like, thought of after? Or that he just couldn't fit into the film? I feel like it could be cancelled. It could be in production hell. So what is 
next for Bong Joon-ho, Baden? Well, let me tell you. His next film, Mickey 17, you might have seen the trailer. It dropped about a month ago. What the fuck? No, I have not. Great cast for this. Rob Pattinson, Stephen Yeun, Tony Collette, and Mark Ruffalo, Hulk oh himself. God. No, I have not seen this trailer. Definitely not. And it releases next year, actually. Nice. And not only that, he has actually announced an animated project involving deep sea creatures and is making two scripts currently in the process. One in English based on a true event that happened in 2016 and the second one in Korean and has a unique elements of horror and action. And so to kind of wrap this up, Bong Joon-ho has created just such a good film legacy, man. Not only for himself, but for Korea and its film landscape in general. The fact that he's created so much more widespread appreciation for international films, it really holds just great honor and respect to me. He changed the landscape. He really changed the landscape for the better. I will watch whatever he makes. 100%. Like, I'm going to watch The Host. While doing research, I was like, man, I gotta watch Parasite again. Yeah, I've watched Memories of Murder, I think, three times. And the first two times I watched it were within days of each other. Because it was so, it's so good. What a filmography, right? What a a great career he's had. So, I think it's time we jump over, Baden, to the discussion. So, Barking Dogs Never Bite Baden. This film is about a man. He's married. He has a child on the way. He wants to become a university professor. Yeah. And he has an unfathomable hatred for dogs. Yeah. To the point where he kills one. Tempted murder on a couple of others, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's about him discovering various things in this apartment complex and about another woman trying to solve the murders of this dog and kind of gain fame in the process. Yeah. So general thoughts, Maiden. I like this film. I liked it too. I think it's very well made. The craftsmanship, you can already see it. I don't know what it is. When I watch one of his films, I get a feeling in like my back and my chest Yeah. while I'm watching it. Like a tenseness and like an intrigue. And even in this earliest film, I felt it. I felt it again. He can make the most mundane things seat gripping. You know what I mean? Let's dig into this because there's a lot to talk about. Why don't we start with some of the characters? So we've got, I think it's Yeonju. He is in the running to become a professor. And one of his dilemmas in the film is that he hears from a, a friend of his that the only way to really do it is bribe them $10,000. Is to bribe the dean. It starts so strangely. It's like the middle of the day, he's talking to his friend who tells him about the bribery and he hears this dog barking. He stops what he does. He goes outside. He takes this dog. He considers it throwing it off the balcony but instead he just kind of traps it in the basement after he tries to hang it don't forget about the hanging yeah and then there's this woman this is an important plot moment so i'm gonna bring it up who's drying radishes on the roof basically he hides the dog at the bottom and he's going back upstairs and he realizes that he got the wrong dog yeah it's a completely different dog that was making the barking noise the one that he snapped can't even bark Probably the craziest part for me, there's just fucking chaos happening in the basement of this apartment. Oh my god. There's a janitor. He's cooking dogs. Yeah. He's making soup out of them. So let me set the scene. <laughs> Yongju is in the basement. He's just gotten this dog and he has to hide because the janitor comes in and he's like, oh shit, he's going to see me like what I did to this dog. Yeah. And we see the janitor takes this dog out of a bucket and you don't see it. It's implied that he like prepares the dog like Carved a chicken and he cooks it into a stew. So like 
like it's weird because Yeonju, he's like a he's like a pretty ordinary guy. And then there's like this weird thing happening in the basement that feels very fantastical almost. You when you're watching the film, you're like, okay, this is the main thing. We, he's gonna find out like this crazy guy is eating dogs. Yeah. That's not even the main villain-esque character. Honestly, it's like it's almost like a B plot. There's another guy who's called the Shadow Man. Great name. <laughs> sleeps in a pile of clothes and we see him rise up and I was like, what the fuck is that? Yeah, on, on we just see this pile of clothes move as this guy comes out and it comes after the guy cooking the dog tells the owner of the building this story about Boiler, Boiler, Kim. Boiler Kim. This Boiler guy who was killed by like the mafia or whatever and embedded in the concrete in this basement. And, and his trademark catchphrase is, it's spinning. It's spinning. <laughs> when he fixes something, he's like, it's spinning. And so it becomes like this ghost tale of the basement and then Yeonju stumbles upon a fucking shadow man living in the basement. And then the shadow man eats the fucking guy's dog stew. Nothing expected happens in this film. No! Everything comes out of left wing. It was shocking. We talked about the janitor, Boiler Kim. I want to talk about the relationships in this film. And then I also want to talk about the parallels between the female character, who is kind of this friend of this woman who works in this toy shop. Yeah. And she wants to be famous after hearing the story of this woman who defended a bank robber. And she's yeah. like, I want to be like her. Yeah, there is a parallel where Yunju's wife is often like sitting or lying down, like sprawled out. Yeah. And the friend is also like lying in the convenience store, lying behind the desk, sitting. We don't see her like doing too much. Yeah. And she kind of berates her. The relationships are kind of weird, pseudo toxic. I mean, Yunju's a bad husband. Yeah, yeah. But it kind of goes both ways. Like the way they treat each other is it's bad. Toxic. It's not good for each other. Yeah. It's weird and they don't really acknowledge it. As the film progresses, as Yangju becomes more unhinged, yeah. his relationship worsens. Like, he starts being more neglectful. But his wife also makes him do some weird things. Like, she's like, you have to crack a hundred walnuts before you can go to, like, this work function. And then she also, like, gets a dog, which obviously infuriates him. And that was the biggest twist of the film. Yeah. She gets this dog. She fucking loves this dog. More than him, More I'd than say. him. She's, like, cuddling with it in bed. And he loses it. He fucking loses it, man. Oh, I meant he lost the dog. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, yeah. He, it's he, both. It's he both. loses the dog and he also loses it in general. So he goes yeah. on a walk with a dog in this misty forest. And so immediately... The assumption everyone... is like the dog's been eaten, it's been taken, and that... And his wife assumes that he killed it. And so basically the rest of this film is he becomes this little girl who he stole the dog from. By putting up these posters, looking for his wife's dog, and eventually the two characters pass paths collide. Him and the girl who wants to become famous. But here's the crazy thing, is their paths already collided before. Mm -hmm. Because Yongju tossed a dog off of the roof killing it. And Yunnam, I think her name is? Yeah, she saw him do this, and so this wild chase occurs. But yeah, so they interacted before and she didn't see his face. So now he's trying to find his wife's dog and she's helping him out and she has no idea that he's the person she was trying to catch. Yeah. And so it's interesting because he ends up getting sort of a cold realization because it's revealed that the wife got her dog using some of her retirement money. Because she gets fired. She gets fired because she's pregnant so she gets severance. Yeah. And after he loses the dog and he's getting all pissed off with her and she reveals like I bought the dog with a tiny amount of my severance money because I just needed 
needed something from me, I was gonna use the rest of it so that you could bribe the dean and become professor. I think from then, I was like, I understand the wife now. She was going through all this stress, one, because she's pregnant. He's completely neglectful of, by the way. Exactly. No support. And two, she fucking lost her job. No wonder she's, like, stressed. I don't think he goes super crazy after that. He gets brought back down to earth a little bit. So what happens is, in the final moments of the film, he goes to look at the guy who eats the dog, and there's this mm -hmm. big kind of tension, and we see him pull it out of the bucket, and we're expecting it to be, oh, fuck, he's already got the dog. He's already killed the wife's Young dog. Young Jew's fucked. Yeah. But instead he pulls out a raw chicken. Yeah. And so we're like, okay. Yeah, where the hell's the dog, though? And so then it cuts to uh, Young Sai, right? She goes up on the roof to collect the radishes, and she sees the shadow man with the dog oh, trying to skewer it from ass to throat. It was so weird because she goes to untie the dog, right? And she's trying to do it stealthily, but the shadow man sees her. And we can see him walking in the background, like, slowly he's up got to a her. steel pipe in his hand. He goes up next to her, and he's like, he's talking so calmly. He's like, oh, let me help you. And then he goes with the rebar, and as she's trying to untie the dog, he starts, like, trying to skewer it just very slowly, very calmly. And he's like, it's okay, it's okay. We can eat it together. What the fuck, what man? What the fuck is going on here? And let me say, there is no explanation for this character. He's just this very mysterious guy in the basement. He gets arrested. It's revealed that he's, like, wanted for something else, I think. Basically, Yonam, she does this big chase scene with him, and she doesn't get the fame. Nothing happens to her, but she's content with her life, while he is kind of, he becomes a professor. Yeah, young It's kind of these two yin and yang kind of fates, almost, where it's happiness, and it's almost like despair, despite getting what you wanted. Well, it perfectly flips because at the very beginning of the film, Yeonju is talking about how he wants to go hiking in the mountains. Yeah. And at the end of the film, he's stuck in the lecture hall looking yes. outside wishing he could go hiking while Yeonnam is hiking. Yeah. Yeah, there's just a lot of great, subtle film stuff. I also thought the sets were really good. I agree. Like, they set dressed them really well, right? Exactly. They felt lived in. They felt filled with props. They never felt bare. Well, that's another thing he does really well, like Parasite. All of the stuff feels very lived in. They built sets for that. Yeah. The these yeah. ones, they just had to set dress existing locations like Bong Joon-ho's actual apartment. Yes. I think they did a really good job. And so to move on, I want to talk about the themes and symbolism. There's I, a lot of stuff. I think we're going to talk about this for a while, probably, because like there's so much to grasp at in here. Okay, so one of the biggest ones I've noticed is when he drunkenly confesses to killing the dog. Mm -hmm. So Youngju confesses to Yeonam that he kills the dog by basically running and saying, do you recognize me from the back of my head? Yeah, because she chased him earlier in the film. Interesting. Interestingly enough, while this is happening, Yonam comes up to him and she's like, you lost a shoe. If you remember, when the Shadow Man got arrested, he also lost a shoe. Yeah. And it's just kind of to show how they're one and the same. Like, although the Shadow Man is kind of like this, I assume, homeless person sleeping in the basement. Yeah, he's like a phantom. It's almost like they are the same, but the only difference is their class status. The Shadow Man is like what he would be if you just took it like a step further. The entire class thing, I think that's the major element of the film. Mm -hmm. Ultimately everyone in this film is just kind of trying to survive. Everyone's like oh, if we get into this upper class we'll be happy, we'll be okay. But it's not as glamorous as it's made out to seem. Yeah. But yet people are struggling so much like, and that's a big theme of the film with the wife severance and I want to talk about though the parallels to Parasite. It's interesting it's obviously very different but there are elements like the person in the basement there's someone living, hidden, in the basement of this apartment complex. The entirety of the Boiler Kim story reminded me of, if you remember in Parasite, it's when the rich family's gone and they're all in the living room yeah. and they're telling stories and stuff. Again, Bong Joo, he does a great job of having characters tell stories to each other. 
And I got the exact same vibe I felt. Yeah, the other parallels, I guess, are just... The desire to get into the upper class, like, doing anything to get into it, even if it's, like, illegal almost, you Exactly, know? yeah. And honestly, even just a lot of the cinematography, I felt, was reminiscent of each other, just at a much lower budget level. There's the bit where he's sleeping next to his wife. They do the overhead shot yes. of them sleeping, which is something that occurs in, in Parasite a lot. I think this is one of the best things about doing this podcast, is these first films where we see the hint of greatness that comes later. I think this is the perfect example of like, it's a proto-Parasite in many ways. When I was watching this, I was like, Parasite almost seems like a remake of what he was trying to go for in this film. Yeah, it's like he, he perfected it. Yes. And I think that's awesome. That's exactly why we want to do this, is to find these gems of greatness. So yeah, Baden, what do you think? I thought it was great. Like, I just think there's more here than we can even talk about. Like, there's so many little elements that I feel like you could do a whole video essay on. You know, there's that beggar lady on the subway who yes. comes up multiple times. And at the beginning of the film, you know, she has a kid on her back. She clearly needs money uh, of some kind. And Hyun Nam tries to help her and she kind of like pushes her away. And then as Hyun Ju is going to go and give the bribe, to his dean he has a, a lot of money on him so he gives her some money and she's like so grateful yeah th like i said i think there's so much you could dig into with this we obviously can't cover all of it i think it's worth a watch though i would give it i'm just gonna do a oh hang on how many dogs are killed in this <laughs> <laughs> there's four dogs in the movie there are i don't know <laughs> anyways i give it a two and a half out of three i give it nine buckets of radishes out of ten nice but even things like that the radishes on the roof there's this old woman who's drying them on the roof and one of the first things that happens after that is it fucking rains on them. She's trying to dry these radishes on the roof and it, like they get waterlogged and so they're probably not as good. I don't really know how drying radishes works but I assume rain is not good. For probably them. not. I think there's something to that. I just think it's crazy that he already was tackling so many rich themes right away in this first film. You know, he describes it himself as a dark comedy and it is funny. The way that um, Yunju ends up stealing from the old lady the dog that he kills. So he like, he distracts her by rolling a bunch of fruit down the streets he fucking sprints in <laughs> grabs a dog and does this like a dive over the fence yeah incredible so to wrap things up i have something kind of interesting i want to talk about what i noticed is the entire symbolism of the dog is it's a man eats dog world as in how the upper class literally consumes the lower class for their benefit for their oh, gain fuck just for a temporary moment of pleasure man eat dog world is something that could come out of like snowpiercer yeah yeah, no, literally. <laughs> I like when my films have politics in them, to be honest. Yeah. I think it's awesome, especially when they're done like this. God damn, he hits the nail on the head, man. But with that being said, let's jump into the behind the scenes. White on set. Unfortunately, there isn't as much behind-the-scenes stuff for this film as some of the others. I could imagine why, yeah. Yeah, it was made in 2000 in South Korea. It was a first-time film for, like, a unknown director. Obviously, they weren't filming a lot of stuff behind the scenes. And I think there's another reason for it, but I'll talk about that in a second. But first off, it's named after the book A Dog of Flanders, which I don't know what that's about. I don't think <laughs> it's really based off of it very much. I think the name is just inspired. It's a reference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Bong Joon-ho actually said that it's meant to feel like a cartoon at certain points, which I think you can feel. Yeah, like the running scene, especially. Especially right? the running stuff, right? Like, my man runs like Ezra Miller. <laughs> he is, it's crazy. He runs like a Looney Tunes character. 
character. <laughs> in an interview, Bong Joon-ho actually said, this is a very stupid black comedy movie. Please don't see the whole movie. Oh. He's known to be critical of his own work. Even with Parasite, apparently he dislikes rewatching it because he notices things that he wishes he'd done differently, which is crazy. Yeah. Um, but he's critical of his own work. And he's, a, he's a perfectionist. For reasons I'll get into, I think that he wants this film to be forgotten. Wow. I don't think he enjoys its existence at all. So it didn't break even. That's, I think, the big thing. So it was made for around $800,000, roughly. And like you said, it was only seen by about 100,000 people, which, not terrible, but uh, some of these films we've watched have were big hits when they came out. Yeah, this, this was not one of them, right? It did do okay uh, in terms of awards, though. Like, it won something called the Fapresky Prize. Once they got entered into some festivals, it picked up a little bit of traction. Yeah. But initial cinema release, it, it did not do very well. Cha Sung-jae, who I think you mentioned, yes. he was a producer. He supported a lot of Bong Joon-ho's choices, which is something he's very grateful for. He continued to support him even after this film flopped, presumably losing this producer quite a bit of money. Wow. Interestingly, this producer actually has quite an extensive list of films that he's produced, including Barbie. Whoa! Not, not, uh. the, not the 2023 version, uh, a 2011 uh, Korean Barbie film not at all related to... <laughs> <laughs> I had you there for a second. You have you on the I had hook. you. I was so um, excited. <laughs> this part's interesting. When he was in elementary school, Bong Joon-ho apparently went to the roof of an apartment complex and he saw the corpse of a dog apparently like slightly burned. What? Which obviously shocked him. And so he started to make up stories about what might have led to that, like what happened to the dog. Oh shit. Which was his primary inspiration for this film. So he pulls from real life so much. There's more actually. His brother was struggling to get his PhD at the time where he was writing this film. No way. Yeah. So obviously that inspired him, Yeonju, a bunch. And you know, his dad was working in university, so he was pretty well aware of all of that stuff. So like with pretty much every film we've talked about, he's pulled bits and pieces from his real life. This was like a childhood film though that yeah. he was thinking about. Wow. Exactly. So like when he started writing his first feature, he remembered thinking about that dog a lot and he started putting it together. Obviously he had a low budget, so he probably figured an apartment complex wouldn't be a terrible location yeah. to shoot at, right? Yeah. Apparently his dad hates the film. Uh, he doesn't like the way that the main character is portrayed, you know, as like a professor, <laughs> um, which I think is really funny. Honestly, that's almost everything I could find about the film. It's really frustrating. Although Bei Duna, probably the most famous person to come out of this, she plays Yeon Nam. She said that he was already professional and confident about what he was doing on the making of this film. And that when she came back to work with him on The Host, he'd barely changed. She actually plays a, a main character role in The Host. She's an archer. Wow, two characters from Barking Dogs and The Host. Yeah, wow, yeah. So okay. she came back as well. Um, she actually still refers to Barking Dogs Never Bite. Uh, she was asked about like what her favorite project was, and she cited it as probably the one that's her favorite project. Wow. So Bong Joon-ho didn't enjoy it, but maybe she did. <laughs> okay, here's one of the more interesting things I found. There's a producer named Lee Jae-ik, who apparently met with Ho after after Barking Dogs Never Bite released. And so he, in this interview, said that Bong Joon-ho was not in a good place after the movie failed and was in such a bad financial position that he was asking friends for rice so that he wouldn't starve. And this producer goes on to say that sitting next to him, uh, he couldn't stand the smell. Oh my god, like in Parasite! Fucking Parasite. Apparently he, he said it just, it smelt of like poverty. That's literally line and for he, line. And the crazy thing, like he told Bong Joon-ho, like at a certain point he 
like mentioned the smell to him and, and Bong Joon-ho was like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, I must smell terrible. I apologize, right? And he sort of like brushed it off. In Parasite, like you just said, there's a whole thing about the smell of poverty. There's a character driving this rich guy and the rich guy's like, what's that smell about you? Oh my God. Fucking, I never would have guessed that was pulled from real life. Whoa! He's a master of just like pulling together these different elements. Because that moment in the film, up until that point, you have like a lot of, not sympathy, but like you have an understanding of the rich family. Like you're not really like hateful towards them. No, yeah. But like once that happens, it's like... It changes the dynamic a lot. And I, I'm, sh- I'm sure in the moment he played it off, but clearly that stuck with him. Because like you're in a fucking like bad place in your life and some guy like rags on you for smelling bad i don't know i think that's a really cool piece of this grand puzzle and this grand story is like even that was something he pulled from real life and that stuck with him for 19 years crazy right and so like this producer said that when he watched parasite and he like saw that element he just felt so like ashamed good i mean good yeah (laughs) Yeah, fuck that guy like yeah that's actually all i've got for the behind the scenes i couldn't find anything about like honestly great point to end on no yeah right like that encapsulates him i think perfectly yeah right he's someone who has been in south korea through very difficult times and he makes all of his films with an absolute piercing political insight a lens lens, exactly yeah. yeah what a great director such a good legacy behind him and a legacy to come i'm really looking i'm excited for his next films really I'll see everything he makes but yeah really interesting film with that being said thank you everyone who has come this far and finished the episode yeah thank you for making it to the end as always make sure to like subscribe to all our social media platforms at first film potty p-o-d-d-y that's right and if you have any suggestions for future directors future films or if you find any behind the scenes stuff for barking dogs never bite email us at first film potty p-o-d-d-y at gmail.com and new episodes come out every two weeks on all your podcasting platforms that's Tuesday every other week so hit that follow button and there's also video versions edited by Baden himself that's right on our YouTube channel we so, got shorts we got YouTubes we got probably other content but uh, as always thank you so much for watching and we'll catch you in the next week's episode which is James freaking gun guns out for gun guns out for gun <laughs> <laughs> Alright, we'll see you in the next one. Goodbye.